Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. It's not just, you know, oh, I'm, you know, I, I can't, I'm trying to figure out how to feel things in front of me. That's not the experience. The experience is these things, these everyday things that you take for granted that will just never be there before. Please rise. Court is now in session. All right. Well, welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry along with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, how are you doing today? I'm good. We just um, we were just talking to our producer right before um, we started recording, and his his audio sounded terrible. So I hope ours sounds better than his. I think I think uh, his <laughs> his audio didn't sound great, but we did get enough out that he didn't know what a Wawa uh, was or is up in uh, up in Pennsylvania, Maryland, New York. I mean, I think they they go through all that area, but uh, it's, yeah. Uh, it's a fantastic convenience store. This case has nothing to do with Wawa's. I just want to be clear about it. No, no. Although it does have to do with Pennsylvania. And um, interestingly, I just timing wise, my birthday was not too long ago and my family's originally from Pennsylvania. And so they sent me a um, box of like all Pennsylvania um, food. So it had like soft pretzels in it and tasty cakes. Um, Cheese and no cheese steak, unfortunately. <laughs> that's that's what I really could have used. Right, yeah. Guess that doesn't travel well. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, but anyway, with all this Pennsylvania talk, um, we should introduce our our guest who um, is from Pennsylvania and practice there. Um, practices there. Our guest is Craig Milston. Craig, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Um, we have so much fun stuff to talk about. I think I feel like Craig's got a real Renaissance man background as far as um, as far as our guests. But um, if you want to learn out learn more about Craig than I'm about to tell you right now, you can look him up. Um, he's at KBG Injury Law. You can look him up at. Um, Wait, did I say KGB? I keep being it's afraid K- I'm going to K- say KBG. Let's, let's be real clear about this. this it is. KBG. It is a, a subtle but important distinction. Right. Yes. <laughs> I keep worrying I'm going to screw that up. Which stands for Catherine Briggs and Greenberg, which Thank is the you. name of the law firm. Thank you. K. K- kbglaw.com or this might be why they have another website that you can go to which is resultsyoudeserve.com which i should have just stuck with that because uh, yeah i feel like if you look up kgb law you're going to find something very different yeah that's and the government's going to start following you <laughs> yeah exactly it's going to take you a lot of uh, actually it's probably got i've got stuff in, about that in my history that's one of my um I'm like interested in that, like MK Ultra cult stuff. Like that's some of my go-to sort of podcast um, in my free time. But anyway, enough, yeah. enough yeah. about me. Um, let's talk about Craig. Craig is a fantastic lawyer. He is in the Million Dollar Advocates Forum. Craig specializes in personal injury cases, including automobile accidents, slip and fall, wrongful death, as well as nursing home negligence and insurance bad faith cases, one of my personal favorites. Um, He is super active in the Pennsylvania Bar, the York County Bar, where he is based in the Pennsylvania Association for Justice. Um, He went to American University and then University of Pittsburgh for for, um, law school. He started out his career as an assistant district attorney in in York County. He did some insurance defense and some commercial litigation. So he's really um, just checking all the boxes, getting all the legal experiences. And one of the cool things he did that um, that you guys were talking about when I got on the Zoom that I missed part of was um, Craig was a sports writer for Washington Post. So Craig, just tell us a little bit about this. Was this this was 
during, you were doing this during law school? Well, I started out, uh, my first job after college was uh, as a sports writer for the Washington Post. Um, <clears throat> as I said, it was kind of pretty low man on the totem pole stuff, um, high school sports, college sports. There were a couple of local minor league baseball teams. And then the best move I ever made for my sports writing career was going to law school. Uh, I went away to Pittsburgh and uh, I basically became the Post's uh, Pittsburgh correspondent. So anytime anything of national interest uh, was going on in Pittsburgh, uh, I got to cover it for. Uh, and it was a good time. This was the early to mid 90s. So uh, there was the Mario Lemieux years with the Penguins and uh, the Barry Bonds years with the, with the Pirates. Uh, the Steelers always had a good team. Uh, it was it was really a great time to do that. Yeah, as, yeah, an, it, as, an, as an Eagles fan, it pains me, but it's true. Oh, oh I, let's not go there. I don't want to hear about that. Yeah, I'm an, I'm an Eagles fan, too. I, actually, let me tell you, the, the funny part was uh, during my third year of law school, I clerked at uh, a personal injury firm in Pittsburgh. And I remember one time one of the partners came over to me and wanted to talk to me about this sports writing that I was doing. And so I was telling them about how it works and you go to the games and, and all that stuff. And when I was done, he looked at me and he said, and you want to do what I do? Right. Exactly. <laughs> like why, why not keep getting paid to go to game, right. go to football games and hockey games? Um, yeah, well, I, it seems like despite um, I'm sure you were a fantastic sports writer, but you're also a fantastic lawyer, including this case that we're going to talk about um, today. Such a fantastic result um, in what was clearly a tricky case and kind of a long road to trial, it sounds like. So there's a lot to talk about. Um, I'm going to tell our listeners a little bit about the case and then we'll just jump into it and, and you can elaborate because there's a lot, there's a lot going on here for what, what people might think was, uh, is a straightforward sort of factual scenario. Yeah. A lot, lot of, a lot of obstacles to overcome, which uh, yeah. Craig did, uh, really well. And there's a couple of things I'm, I'm really excited to talk to him about. Yes. So um, the case is William Waite versus Argento Family Partnership. Um, and this case was tried in 2017, um, but it's about an incident that happened in 2012. And we'll talk a little bit about why it took um, a little bit longer than usual even to get to trial. Um, but William Waite, who's a U.S. Army veteran, sounds like at this time in 2012, he was about 80 years old. Um, he was a retired president of an architectural products company. And he had um, he only had vision in his left eye at the time leading up to the incident. Um, but he was and, and, and we'll talk about because I think Craig did a really good job of getting this across. But, you know, he was living a normal life. He was driving around, you know, his having vision in one eye wasn't really affecting him and the things he liked to do. He liked to golf. Sounds like he was pretty good at it. Um, anyway, he went to a store. Sounds like kind of a coin collection situation. I'm not exactly sure on that. But um, he went to a store that was in this uh, sort of set of commercial buildings. And on his way out, he fell... Um, face first after going down um, an unmarked step. It was just one step, almost uh, six inches high at the shopping center. And this is one of the times where it would be really helpful to be able to show um, pictures on a podcast. Right. And we'll put that on the, we'll make sure that, that goes up on the website, but Craig sent us some of the photos uh, sort of showing both what it looked like before and the um, and how easy it would have been to fix. But looking at the photos, you cannot tell where there's a step there. Yeah. And it's, um, 
in case, like when I first started reading it, I was almost picturing sort of like a cement sidewalk that's in front of a shopping center where that you would step off of into like an asphalt parking lot. But that's not really what what it was. It was a it was a cement step that went down into more of the cement walkway. So everything's the same color. Um, so it really blends together. It's kind of hard to see even in the pictures. So I imagine in real life, it's it's even harder to see. And, and we'll talk more about that. Um, so Mr. Waite falls, he falls forward and he ends up hitting his eye on chairs that were outside of a tattoo shop that was in the same complex, basically, um, and hits his good eye. And so because of that trauma, despite multiple surgeries and attempts to try to restore his vision, it's basically as a functional matter, he's, he's, he's blind now out of his good eye. I think it's, maybe he sees 20 over 200. Um, so, uh, you know, really not vision that's doing him any good out of his only good eye. So it, it, it means he's blind. Um, but as you can imagine, and we'll talk about, I think there's a lot of tricky things in the case, including the fact that this is somebody who, who only had one good eye to begin with. And, um, anyway, after a long road that we'll talk about, Craig finally gets the case to trial in March 2017 in a York County, Pennsylvania, Georgia, uh, Pennsylvania, Georgia, <laughs> York <laughs> County, Pennsylvania jury uh, found the owner of this commercial complex, Argento Family Partnership, um, negligent after a four day trial, less than an hour of deliberations. They awarded a just a fantastic award when you consider there's some things in this case, including the age of the plaintiff that you might worry is going to hurt the result. Uh, but they awarded over $4 million, $4,035,329.11. And that 35,000 some number, that was for medical expenses. So for that 4 million of that amount was for the non-economic past and future damages um, that Mr. Waite was suffering. Um, and even more impressive, 0% of the fault was allocated to, to Mr. Waite by the jury. Um, so we've talked and alluded to it about what was so tough about this case. And, you know, where I wanted to start, because I think this is something a lot of lawyers can relate to, um, and but is not talked about a lot, especially in trials, which is that as you were litigating this case, um, it initially got thrown out for on a motion for summary judgment. And so you had to appeal that and get the case back before you could continue the road to trial. So Craig, I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit about the issues that um, I read the order you sent us, and I'm hoping you could talk about the issues um, for why that summary judgment was granted and, and why that was wrong. Well, the summary judgment uh, Grant was definitely a surprise, uh, certainly to me, and I'm, I'm pretty sure it was a surprise to the defense attorney who filed it as well. Um, the, the gist of the motion, there really were, were two gist uh, <clears throat> to it. One was the notion that um, Mr. Waite, like, like a lot of people who uh, suddenly fall, uh, could not tell us exactly how he fell or why he fell. Um, you know, he's walking along and then in the next minute he's on the ground. Uh, he said all he could see out of his, out of either his eyes at that point was what he called red hamburger meat. Um, and so, you know, throughout the course of the case, he was very honest, obviously, in his uh, testimony that he had no idea what happened. So that was part of the the motion that the second part was really the, the perplexing part, um, <clears throat> which was that the, uh, my expert uh, in writing his report 
uh, <clears throat> wrote an excellent report. Um, but he had one sentence in there where he used the words that Mr. Wade either tripped or slipped. Um, and then the entirety of the rest of the report, he's completely clear that the circumstantial evidence is, is obvious here that he missed this step and he fell. And it was because the step was unmarked was what caused him to fall. But the judge uh, somewhat inexplicably really focused on that one sentence of he either slipped or tripped and combined that with the notion that he didn't know how he fell. And so I, I, I recall defense counsel, um, it's a good guy that I've had other cases with before, and he kind of jokingly confided in me before the oral argument started that his goal that day was to not get yelled out of the courtroom by the judge for filing this motion. And then when it was over, we both walked out of the courtroom and looked at each other and said, I, oh my God, he's going to grant your motion. Yeah. Uh, and so next thing we know, he, you know, the case is completely kicked uh, and we've got to go through the appeal process just to get right back to where we were before. Yeah, I mean, I was really surprised by that. I mean, especially for our, you know, for our, I know what our lawyer listeners are thinking and for our non-lawyer listeners, I mean, to have it essentially be on thrown out on causation um, is, is, you know, normally pretty fact specific. It's normally something that could or should go to a jury. And you did have, it's not like there was an issue about um, where he fell, right? I mean, you had an eyewitness that was sounded like was at the tattoo shop maybe who who saw him go down these stairs. And, and so it wasn't like, I mean, I think anybody who's fallen, it's like, well, if you knew exactly why you fell, you probably wouldn't fall in the first place. Right. I mean, c considering the fact that he had a puddle of blood that I think they he said was about 10 inches in diameter, diameter that he's his head is laying in. So, I mean, but the place where he falls has one step that's unmarked, nothing to slip on, really nothing to trip on. And he goes down right in front of this guy. So, I mean, you can certainly, you know, you certainly have circumstantial evidence to show, you know, what caused him yeah. to fall. Uh, you could you could substitute this case for the jury instruction on circumstantial evidence. You know, the, the jury instruction here in Pennsylvania always talks about if you, you walk inside a building and it's dry outside and then you come outside and it's completely wet, circumstantial evidence tells you that it had rained. And in this case, you know, we've got this long straight sidewalk in front of the shopping center. And there is a single step, uh, circumstantially, right in the vicinity where Mr. Waite fell. And there's really nothing there to trip on. There's nothing there to slip on. Uh, and we have a witness who, while he doesn't see uh, the beginning of the fall, he sees Mr. Waite's feet go flying up in the air behind him. And then they find him on the ground right beyond this step. So, you know, again, that's pretty much the definition of circumstantial evidence. Right, right. Yeah. Um, you know, and one of the things I thought was interesting that I actually, I actually did not know until I was reading, um, you know, the outline of your opening and closing and some of the other, um, documents that you'd filed with the court. Um, you know, I didn't know that there was really like that you, I knew there'd be standards involved, but I didn't know that there were sort of like these standards or accepted guidelines about disfavoring just, um, just one step, like to have just one step like this, but that if you have to have one, then obviously there are things that you should do to, to, to make it obvious. But, you know, when you were approaching this case, um, Craig, did you, did you already know that that was kind of like that these sort of one step situations were looked down on or explain a little bit about how you developed that? We didn't 
uh, have uh, any sort of statute or ordinance or regulation being broken here. So there, there's nothing that, that was going on here that was against any type of law. So what we did have though, however, were the accepted standards within the industry. And when they talk about a single step like this, really what they say is that it is, it's disfavored. You shouldn't do it unless for some unknown reason you absolutely have to. And if you do have to have it, then there are, it's really fairly simple to address that. You need to do something to distinguish this step. Uh, it could be as simple as painting it. It could be, uh, you could put a sign up, you could put a, a handrail next to it. Um, you could go you know, slightly further and, and actually texture the concrete over, uh, over the step. Uh, or you could, of course, you know, take it out, create it out completely. Um, and then, you know, as the, the case went on, the, the defense expert basically, you know, did not contest that. Uh, you know, it was the, he had the, the same position on what the rules were regarding a single step like this, where they tried to uh, say that this step somehow or another met those rules had to do with the fact that, again, if you can picture, this is a, it's a small shopping center. Okay, there's three uh, stores within the shopping center. On the right side of the shopping center is a pizza shop. In the middle is this coin uh, shop. And on the left side is a, uh, is a tattoo parlor. This, the sidewalk runs across the entire length of it. And the single step was basically right before the, the tattoo parlor. So as you're looking at it, it's about two thirds of the way on, you know, on your way to the left side. Um, and right in front of the sidewalk is the parking lot. You know, there's parking spaces, cars pull right up to it. Uh, and the parking lot, of course, was a slightly different color and, of course, made from different materials than the sidewalk was. So while the sidewalk was, like you said, all the, exactly the same color, exactly the same texture, if you stood at the coin shop and you looked down towards the step, it just disappears. I mean, you just don't see it at all. Mm -hmm. But their expert's position was because it was adjacent to the parking lot and the parking lot was a different color, that that somehow or another met the standard of distinguishing it somehow. And uh, that struck me as a really flimsy, ridiculous uh, explanation. And I, I think yeah. the jury tended to obviously thought that too. Yeah, I saw that there was a there was a mention, at least in your outline of your closing. And I, I, I don't know if that was Mr. Illo or Ilo or is, is, yeah. is he the no. one who was kind of um, you know, you mentioned sort of in your closing, at least, or at least in your outline, that this was like one of the most frustrating things about your job. And was it just this kind of absurd position that he just continued to persist in and trial or was there something else? Uh, we, we started with the absurd position. Um, yeah. <clears throat> he and I had another uh, portion of our cross-examination where when he took his photographs, he stood at the entrance to the coin shop and, you know, was taking the photo from the perspective that you're looking down the sidewalk towards the step. And he obviously basically tucked himself inside the doorway to the coin shop so as to angle his camera right. out and get as much of the parking lot in that photo as possible. It's a small point. You know, he's whatever, he's doing his thing. I wanted to get him to admit that he was basically standing inside the coin shop when he took that, that picture. And he became one of these witnesses that he was not going to admit to anything. <laughs> <laughs> anything at all. And then it just became this tooth pulling exercise, the whole cross-examination. And um, like, I just, you know, I, it, it's, I don't know why any 
professional expert would think that that's a good way to, right. uh, because the jury, I think, was every bit as frustrated with him as I was. Well, it's one it's one of those things that while it's frustrating as a lawyer, it's almost a gift to you in trial because then it just shows that they're not being straightforward with what they're saying, which juries oftentimes, most of the time, uh, will catch on to. And so it, it, it you hate to go through it, but at the same time, he probably did you a favor. Yeah. Yeah, it's one of the it's another example of those things that we've talked about on the show before, Steve, where there's certain things that work for your motion for summary judgment or the work in your deposition that do not work at trial. And that's one of those things that like, you know, when experts won't use a certain word in their deposition and everybody knows why they're doing it. But you're just like, okay, fine. I just got to get their opinions and get out of here. But like it does not work in trial when a jury is like, I mean, they just don't have the patience for that. Well, and, and like we just had an example in an, in another case where I guess a certain group of witnesses wouldn't use a, a certain terminology. And so it just when you're in front of the jury, you just keep asking using that same terminology and then making them use, you know, some other language that nobody's right. going to agree with. And it just starts to look ridiculous. And the jury sees that. I'll, I'll phrase it a slightly different way. I, I think that it comes down to trust. Yeah. You know, I think that jurors come into this process and they're somewhat distrustful of everybody. They don't they think that everybody on both sides is trying to sell them something here. And so you either establish yourself as somebody that when you say things, they can trust you Mm -hmm. or or you do the opposite of that. That's exactly what he did. I mean, once he did that, I think the jury is sitting there thinking, you know, wow, how can we trust that this person is telling us the right side of it when I they they can't acknowledge even facts that that are plain as day? Yeah, right. it, it goes back to this credibility, uh, you know, I mean, your credibility in front of the judge, the jury, everybody is so important. And uh, and that and ultimately, it's my belief that that's what the battle in, at trial usually comes down to is who's more credible. And uh, and if you do something to sacrifice your credibility or the other side does, uh, that side's going to that side's going to suffer. So, Yvonne, the Internet is getting more and more crowded, especially ever since the pandemic. And it's getting harder and harder to get noticed online. And you can have all the great verdicts in the world. But if nobody knows about them, then they're not going to come and hire your law firm. So you need to find a company like Digital Law Marketing. That's right. It turns out that what you put on the Internet is no good if people can't find it. And Steve, we've talked about this, but now that I finally know what SEO is, which is search engine optimization. It's really important that your firm's site is is maximizing the hits that it's going to get. And something that digital law marketing is doing that's really cool right now is they're offering free SEO audits uh, for law firm campaigns. So that's something our listeners should take advantage of. Yeah, because it's hard to get around the internet and know how to make yourself visible without having somebody help you. And they are the experts in this. And not only will they help you design your website if you need to, they'll do your content marketing, they'll do your search engine optimization, as Yvonne just said, they'll do your pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, and they also will offer full management on Google's new local service ads, which we just learned about and are trying to get into, but it's another way that you can put yourself out there and get people to know who you are. And digital law marketing is great at it. 
Exactly. And, you know, one of the things I think is cool is that you work with them and they really make you feel like they know your firm and they know you and that they help you with your web presence so that it feels individual. It doesn't feel cookie cutter. It feels like they know the people at your firm and they get what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, it's not like they already have a website done and just give you one that's already been done. But they will spend time with you, get to know your personality, put your personality into the website. And you should go visit them at digitallawmarketing.com. That's digitallawmarketing.com. Tell them, tell them we sent you. So, Craig, one so one of the things I learned from your case was sort of this uh, the um, idea that at least sort of the accepted or uh, standards or the best practices out there as far as this whole approach to one step, which by the way, I have that goes down into my living room. My living room's a little sunken. Uh, Everyone in my family has like kind of fallen a little bit. So (laughs) I got to go home and I, right now I literally have painter's tape on the edge of the step um, (laughs) until I figure out more permanently what to do about it. It's a can of paint. It's a can of paint. That's what could have saved this lawsuit. (laughs) Right, right, right. I'm just saying, I got to make a note of that for my own home. Um, But um, one of the other things that I thought was interesting, and I think that anybody from a layperson standpoint or even from a case intakes standpoint at a jury as a lawyer is going to be a little bit worried about the fact that going into this, your client only had one good eye. And there's at least sort of this um, perception out there that that means that you're that you don't have depth perception right. and, and other things like that. So you can you talk, Craig, a little bit about how you handled that in that case, what, what's true and not true about that. Because I, I, um, I really like, at least based on your outline on, on how you handled that with the jury up front. Well, and let me just add on to that question for you, Craig, because not only did he have his right eye was bad, but in the nineties, I think his left eye became bad and then he got surgery and it seemed to have corrected it, but at least would give the defense something to argue about that not only was his right eye bad, but also his left eye had, uh, had, uh, a, um, a problem with the cornea as well. So, yeah, that that was uh, one of the challenges in the case was that he'd had these vision, uh, some very serious vision problems uh, throughout his life, um, to the point that uh, he had really no no vision in in one eye and uh, had had some issues even with his good eye. Although it remained true that the vision out of his good eye was perfectly fine at the time of the fall. Um, but I do think that that perception, Yvonne, that you talked about, the, this idea that, you know, he only had one eye, it affects his depth perception. I, I, I believe that that was at least part of how the insurance company was approaching this from, from the get-go. You know, oh, if this one eye guy trips over this, this step, you know, it's, how can that be our fault? Uh, and so, you know, at the end of the day, the only testimony, uh, the defense here actually never got a medical expert. Um, and so the only testimony that we had was from our doctors that, that uh, again, dispelled the notion that only having one eye has a significant effect on your depth perception. Uh, and then the way we tried to illustrate that was I, I just, I took Bill's life that he was living uh, up to this point and described it for them, all of the different ways that he did what he did with one eye. And that included, of course, had a valid driver's license. He drove himself everywhere. Um, he was an avid golfer. He had a, you know, and a group of other retirees that he loved to, you know, go looking for cheap tea times to, to play golf a couple of times a week. And, and I describe what that's like. And you can, you know, walking up and down uh, uneven ground on golf courses, up to tee boxes, uh, not to mention swinging a golf club and hitting a ball with right. one eye. And then it turns out that, Mr. Wade, on top of all of his other wonderful qualities, is a 
exceptional golfer. <laughs> He's had three holes in one with one eye. Uh, and so I think, you know, by the time we described all of these these things, it was apparent that this one eye was not uh, an impediment to him um, and, and certainly not something that would have contributed uh, to, to his falling here. That was not what caused him to fall. Yeah. Is, this is jumping ahead a little bit, but as far as your damages witnesses, did you bring any of his golfing buddies to talk about <laughs> them playing golf and what kind of golfer he was? No, we we didn't. I I'm not sure that I trust golfing buddies. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it's, it's a good idea, though. That's a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> um. Well, so one of the other defenses that that I think we all expect in a sort of a premises type case that sounds like it uh, changed actually during this trial in maybe ways you didn't expect was normally one of the first questions is for other similar incidents, other mm -hmm. people getting fa falling and injured at the same spot is going to help you out, right? If you've got a case, they're on notice that this is a dangerous problem. And it sounded like at least when you started the trial, you did not have any reports of other similar incidents, but that during the trial, um, you had a witness, I think, uh, Mr. Hughes, who maybe surprised everyone by coming and saying not only had other people fallen, but he had fallen at, at this spot himself. Well, and, and first talk about how you handled it when you thought there were none, because I love the way you handled the fact that, that at least going in, you thought there were no other incidents. I'm not sure that I ever believed that there were no other incidents, but okay. but, the, but the real issue was we have no proof of there ever being any other incidents. So the, the history here is that the step has been there for a pretty long time. Uh, the shopping center had been there for a pretty long time, um, 40, or, or 40 or so years. But the step came about because they added on to the shopping center. So again, three stores there. Uh, the third one that became the tattoo shop here uh, was added on at one point. And then for reasons that I can't fathom, rather than just grade the lot out flat, they they went, you know, kind of sloped away a little bit and they added that step in there. I don't know, maybe for drainage or something. Nobody knew the answers to those questions. Mm. Um, but uh, so the only witness here was the uh, the guy who was working inside the tattoo parlor at the time. Uh, and his name was, was Hughes. And when, you know, we initially asked in discovery, you know, for any other reports that they had. And of course they said there were none. Uh, and then when we brought Hughes in to testify, really had the impression that Hughes was somehow or another trying to help the defense here, that he was on their side and said that he'd never seen anybody ever miss that step or trip over or, or fall. And again, you know, when you look at it, it looks exactly like the type of thing that people probably routinely missed. Now, maybe they don't fall and suffer catastrophic injuries, mm -hmm. um, but clearly people trip over that. Uh, but at deposition, he denied all of that. Um, and again, the defendants just denied that anybody ever fell over this. Although, interestingly, um, they acknowledged that they had anybody ever actually fallen over this and reported it to them, that they don't keep any of those records. <laughs> okay. So... So number one, it was obviously not credible that nobody had ever fallen there. And number two, even if somebody had, they wouldn't even have a record of it. Um, and so the way we approached it going into trial was I, I told the jury right in the opening that I expected them to hear from the defense that nobody had ever fallen over this step before. You know, the implication being, of course, it's so obvious no one would do that. Um, and so I told them, I said, every time that you hear them say no one's ever fallen over this before, I want you to say in your head that we know of. And then I went on and described that situation. I mean, who knows how many times people fell over this and just, uh, you know, scraped something or, or didn't get hurt at all. And I said, you know, had Mr. Waite fallen 
and you know just scraped he would have dusted himself off felt embarrassed got in his car and go home nobody would have ever known about it um and then then went on and talked about but even if somebody did fall and get hurt they're the only ones that hold that information and if they t- they don't give it to us then we don't get it and so i just sort of emphasize that again and again I said, every time they said i want you to say to yourself that we know of and I, I mean, I think that turned out to be a really effective way to do it because there's not a lot of counter on the other side, right? Right. I mean, they either have to believe them that they're telling the truth that nobody ever fell there, or they say, well, I mean, you certainly aren't going to tell us. Right. It, and and I, I mean, I assume, but there, there were no security cameras at the front of this property or anything yeah. like that. Okay. No, nothing like that. And so York, then- York, York is a little behind uh, <laughs> right, <laughs> so yeah. other places on that front. <laughs> Um, so then did, did, um, did Mr. Hughes, did he, did he say something different at trial? Yeah. I'm um, sorry. I forgot about that. Um, so I, you know, he was still working uh, at this tattoo shop when he gave his deposition. He was no longer working there by the time trial rolled around, you know, five years later. And um, I had not spoken to him in between his deposition and, and the trial. Um, but uh, he came in to testify. I mean, I wanted his testimony about the feet going up in the air and, mm-hmm. and things like that. And, um, you know, I saw him sitting uh, in the back of the courtroom while we were on a on a break before we started up again. I just went to talk to him, introduced myself again, and we started talking. And the very first thing he starts telling me is about how he has, how he wants to apologize. because He has actually seen people fall over that many times. And, he, you know, he doesn't know why he didn't tell us that during the deposition, uh, but it's the truth and he's going to tell the truth today. And I was like, Okay, <laughs> good. Thank you for telling me. Um, and so I put him up there on the stand and we start going through the questions and that's exactly what he says. And of course, you can imagine the defense attorney is, you know, losing his mind that this is what the testimony is. And so on cross-examination, um, he just, he attacked him uh, ferociously over that. And, uh, but he never, he's never blinked. He didn't back down. Um, he said, I just, all I can tell you is, that's the absolute truth I'm telling you here today. I've, I've seen people fall. It's happened many times. Um, and so, yeah, that whole uh, situation really, that was an unexpected bonus. Yeah. Wow. Well, and um, I should mention, I didn't really talk about this um, when I was sort of giving the summary of the case, is that the the family, Argento Family Partnership, that that owned the the property and um, was your, your primary defendant, um, they, I guess, um, I guess it was a sort of a family business was that was started up by mom and dad. But at this point, I guess kind of the kids or the siblings were sort of involved in the business, but the sort of, I don't know if he was the one in control, but, but one of the siblings, um, was actually, uh, did all civil defense litigation. So he was, um, he was maybe more savvy on the legal aspects than a lot of property owners. Yeah, that was definitely uh, <clears throat> one of the major wrinkles in in the case here. Uh, you know, on the one hand, our defendant was this kind of family real estate partnership started by by you know, like you said, mom and dad way long ago with this pizza shop. They they grew it substantially uh, to the point that they had some you know much more substantial holdings, including this little shopping center. Uh, but the mother and the father had had gotten much older, um, were no longer involved, uh, and it had fallen to the kids, the oldest of which coincidentally happened to be a partner at a very large Pennsylvania-based insurance defense firm. Um, and, and so obviously he had a lot of expertise and specialization in just this type of case. 
Um, and I, and he was the spokesperson really for the, the partnership. Um, and so he became, he, well, he was the face of it right from the get-go, actually. <laughs> okay. And you made that part of your theme, both in the opening and closing that, you know, he would not only, you know, and I, I saw you played up the fact that he was a super lawyer and, you know, he, that he, he does these types of cases and, uh, you know, and it's probably the, the one time that he was regretting that he was a, a super lawyer, but uh, yeah, I wonder. <laughs> so I, so I didn't, I didn't know him. Uh, like I said, I, I knew of the the family. I, I knew of the pizza shop. I, I grew up here in New York. Um, but what happened was after we notified them of our representation, uh, he called me on the phone and uh, started asking me some questions. And so, I, you know, ordinarily I, I wouldn't really engage in that with 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 the defendant. Uh, I just want them to turn it over to their insurance carrier. But because he was an insurance defense attorney, I don't know, out of some sense of professional courtesy, I figured I would just give him some of the basics here about what happened. And so I started to tell him, uh, just the basic story. He had questions. I started to answer the questions. The questions went on and on to the point that I, you know, I, I stopped. I was like, listen, I, I mean, I'm trying to be nice here, but I'm not going to give you a deposition. And that kind of flipped the switch. And he really <laughs> went off on me. I mean, he was uh, just screaming at me on the phone, uh, you know, more or less to the effect of how dare you um, you know, how dare I, what, you know, represent my client for this, yeah. I believe is a right. very valid case, obviously. Um, but he went on and on. And then, uh, you know, finally we got to the end where I, I said, well, are you going to turn it over to your insurance carrier? And he said, no. <laughs> and so that was the end of the conversation. Now, obviously he did. Um, but it was right then and there that I kind of knew, I was like, well, you know, I know who the villain's going to be uh, in this story. And so, you know, he gave a deposition. Um, he obviously had gotten himself under control by that point. Uh, you know, and he uh, was the good witness that I think he, you know, he imagined himself to be during his deposition. Uh, he repeated that performance at trial. And, you know, on the whole, I thought he did a reasonably good job of it. But I went into the trial. Um, again, I wanted the jury to know who he was and to use all of that against him the best that I could. And so I talked about how you know, not only is he a, a lawyer, but he's, he's, this is exactly the type of case that if the circumstances were different, he'd be the one in the lawyer's chair defending this case. Um, and then I used the whole, you know, the super lawyer designation against him. I talked about how I, I don't really know him, but I, he must be an exceptionally good lawyer if he's been named a super lawyer. I don't, I'm not a super lawyer. His lawyer <laughs> over there is not a super lawyer, but, but he is. Um, and so, you know, at the end of the day, I think, it really kind of played into it because I, you know, I don't, juries obviously don't like companies or businesses or anybody who they perceive as big and powerful, you know, trying to escape responsibility. Um, but I think the idea of a super lawyer trying to escape responsibility really rated on them too. And when we spoke to the jury afterwards, um, they were unanimous that they, that they basically hated them. <laughs> Yeah, and what, what was his, what was his explanation on the stand for why he never did anything about this step? Because it, because really, I think your your case was basically that if he had just painted this step, which is a, you know maybe a couple of bucks, uh, this all could have avoid been avoided. Yeah, I'm 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 not above theatrics, but I do try to keep it. I mean, I'm not I don't go overboard, um, but I did do one during. Um, opening statement, you know, it kind of went, walked through the whole thing, talked about how simple it would have been for them 
to have corrected this. Um, the, the most simple and cost-effective way, of course, would just be to paint it. Uh, and so at the end of, you know, I kind of went through the whole thing, told them all about what Mr. Waite's life was like now. Uh, and then I actually had with me a can of yellow paint and a brush <laughs> that nice. I had I like underneath the podium. And at the end of it, I literally took it out, you know, that sort of silent theatrical popped it on the the podium first the brush i mean first the, the can then the brush and said that's it that's all it would have taken you know 15 dollars for this 15 minutes and mr Waite would still have his eyesight yeah um and so you know the answer to the question how did they answer that there there wasn't really an answer the answer was just we don't have to um we don't have to it wasn't necessary and um and that was another thing that i i think we were able to use as a hammer uh, during closing, I talked about look at the extraordinary lengths they are willing to go to to defend this case. Look how much money they're willing to spend. Look how much fight they're willing to put, how much effort they're willing to put into it to defend this case. But 15 minutes with a can of paint and a paintbrush—that's way too much to ask of us. Right. Right. How could we be asked? How could we be expected to do that? Yvonne, uh, you know that the practice of law since the pandemic has started has completely changed. Completely changed. A lot more pajamas involved for me. Yes, yes. A lot more working from the computer. Yes. And only getting <laughs> dressed from the uh, from the waist up. But you know who has helped that change and that transition immensely in our practice and can help everybody else in theirs is legal technology services. That's right. I mean, being good at doing things virtually, at doing things through Zoom, through video conference online, it's more important now than ever. I'll say Zoom or WebEx or whatever you use now Legal Technology Services has completely changed how they do things in order to get you organized, looking good. Our depositions, our hearings, our mediations have all changed. And a big part of that is because we do them all virtually and we're doing them with the help of Legal Technology Services. So they get our exhibits in order, um, you know, and you call up the exhibits by number. They'll highlight them, they'll enlarge them, they'll do whatever they want. And it actually flows really well. I do have to say, I think my depositions are more organized now than they were before the pandemic because I used to just walk in with like a giant box of documents and then I'd pull out the documents and go through them and uh, now I'm much more organized because of legal technology services. Yeah and I mean LTS I'm gonna I'm gonna call them LTS because we, yes. we're on a first name basis <laughs> you know my favorite thing about them is that we work with them a lot their staff is really highly trained and you can always count on them to represent you well whether they're doing your trial technology when we have in-person trials one day or if they're handling your depositions or they're doing settlement videos, other kinds of videos documenting stuff for you, you can always count on them to conduct themselves well. Clients like them, judges like them, courts like them, lawyers like them. Yeah, the one thing that I have to say is uh, when we're in trial, while I think we do pretty good in front of juries and hopefully they like us, they always like our trial techs, whether it's Bob, Taylor, Quentin, David, Liz, just any one of the people over there, they're all fantastic. And of course, Melanie, who runs the ship over there. But they do more than just exhibits. They do day in the life videos. They do settlement documentaries. They do demonstratives. And everything they do is just excellent. And you can look them up at ltsatlanta.com. And I can say that if you call them and tell them that you heard about them on the Great Trials podcast, then you get 10% off of your first service. 
So look them up at ltsatlanta.com. And I do want to say, even though they're based in Georgia, they do work nationwide. And they, I know they've done trials all over the country. Uh, but look them up at ltsatlanta.com. So was this uh, this shopping center, I mean, you tried it in York and you said this had been around, the, the pizza place had been around for a long time. I mean, so it, everybody on the jury knew of this place and had probably been by there? Uh, yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't recall Vardy. I'm sure we would have asked about people being there. So York is not a big place, but it's not that small of a place either. Um, the, the entirety of York County, Pennsylvania is about 400,000 people, even though the city of York is, is only about 40,000. So if you grew up in a certain part of York, then you probably were familiar with it. Um, but I, I don't know that it was a given that people on the jury would have been uh, would have been familiar with it. Um, so speaking of defenses and 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 credibility, one of the things I meant to ask you about earlier that I just I got to know this whole goggles thing. <laughs> that was nice. <laughs> I got to know how that played out. It, it was a it was a it was a relatively small thing, but it was during the. Um, <clears throat> the deposition of one of our medical experts, the defense attorney was asking him, the, the, the gist of the questioning was, if you're Mr. Wade and you're walking around with only one good eye, shouldn't you take extra steps to protect that good eye? And he literally asked the doctor if Mr. Wade shouldn't have been walking around wearing goggles all the time to protect his only good eye that he had left. And um, it kind of came and went relatively quickly in the in the deposition, but I still felt the need to remind yeah. the jury that they had suggested that during closing. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. I um I don't know if it if it if at trial it it um, played out to be a little bit of sort of um, comic relief, but when I read that, I was like, really? Just the yeah. poor the guys goggles. expected to wear goggles everywhere. I goes? mean, uh, Horace Grant, Kareem Abdul Jabbar works for them, so uh, <laughs> yes, <why right>. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. But they're not like wearing them to the supermarket <laughs> <laughs> that we know of. That we, that we know, know of. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! Well. Um, there's so I have a lot of questions about sort of the damages part of the case, but Steve, before Let I move me, on, yeah, well, I, one thing that would have worried me about this case, and I was just wondering about Pennsylvania law. Is it, so this was uh, the the coins and currency company, Steinmetz Coins and Currency, and it sounded like your client was a coin collector and had been there several times before. Was there any concern about whether or not he had traversed that step before, and whether or not that was going to be a defense and yeah, uh, you see, that's a it's a good question. It's one obviously that comes up on premises liability cases a lot. Had you, you know, had you just walked up over the step on your way in? Had you been right. there before? Um, he had been to this uh, to this place before, but at least what he had told us was, um, the, you know, there are parking spaces kind of all along the front of this shopping center, and it's, you know, it's a pizza place, it's a coin shop, and it's a tattoo parlor. So again, this isn't like a Walmart or a Starbucks or that tra kind of traffic coming through. Um, relatively lightly uh, attended, and he'd always found a parking space right in front of the coin shop. So if you parked right in front of the coin shop and you walk straight in, you never get to the part of the sidewalk where this step was. On this particular day, it was the day before the 4th of July. I don't know why that would necessarily be a busy day, but it was. Uh, and he had to park at the far end of the uh, of those steps, I'm, I'm sorry, of the uh, parking spaces, which forced him uh, to walk through the parking lot on his way into the coin shop first. But when he came out, he just made the, the sharp right turn on the sidewalk, walked down the sidewalk towards his car. So that was the first time that he had encountered the step. 
Okay. Yeah. That, Cause that was one thing I was wondering about is if he had been over that area, but yeah, that, that explains it. Um, well, so there was, um, I, I mean, obviously this was a terrific damages award and, and reading your, um, your closing outline, I couldn't tell, I didn't see it, but I couldn't tell whether, um, you were permitted to suggest any, any concrete numbers to the jury. And if not, how, how you did handle sort of their award. Yeah, in Pennsylvania, we we do not get to give them any numbers whatsoever when it comes to the non-economic damages. So even jury, obviously, a, even a per diem or anything like that. Uh, well, if you if you've got a life care plan or or something like that, you can you can do that. We we didn't have anything like that here. Okay. Um, so the the jury was aware of the approximately thirty five thousand dollars that was basically a Medicare lien. Um, but uh, when it comes to non-economic damages, they are left wholly to their own devices. And, and I, you know, I think it was one of the, the main issues in the case was whether or not the jury would be capable of, a, a York County jury would be capable of issuing damages so great that it would put the policy limits here in, in jeopardy. And I think the insurance company was feeling confident that it would not, despite the fact that we have such, you know, an enormous injury here, I mean, total blindness, um, but uh, York County is an exceedingly conservative jurisdiction. Um, the, really, the, the the middle of Pennsylvania is all a very conservative jurisdiction. Um, uh, the, the big joke, I think it was James Carville or somebody once said, in Pen uh, Pennsylvania is Philadelphia on one end, Pittsburgh on the other, and Kentucky in between. Um, <laughs> and and so it, it, it's, you know, verdicts, seven-figure verdicts are virtually unheard of uh, here, um, very, very few of them. Uh, and it just so happened that the, the, the policy here was a, a million dollar policy. Uh, and the uh, insurance adjuster told me shortly before trial that they didn't believe that even in their worst case scenario, uh, if they lost on liability, uh, the jury awarded full damages, they didn't believe that their policy limits were at issue. Thanks. He was, he, he was wrong about that. He was wrong, he was wrong. <laughs> exactly. Um, so I, yeah, oh, go I, ahead, just gonna, I just wanted to make sure that everybody, you know, we already talked about that he was 80 years old when this happened, but at time of trial, I think he's 84. Yeah. I mean, so we're talking about somebody who is well on in his years and it sounded like he was in great shape, but I mean, to, to get a $4 million verdict for somebody of that age, even with uh, blindness, I mean, um, and, and uh, Yvonne, maybe that's what you're leading up to is, you know, kind of take a step by, by step through like how you presented that to the jury to, to get him to that number. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to attribute that to two main things, um, <clears throat> one of which is Mr. Wade is an exceptional human being and, and has an exceptional family. Um, really, the entire family was just an incredible joy to get to know, and, I, and I'm proud to say that I've, I'm still in touch with them, and, and I, I really enjoy uh, knowing them. And so, you know, to tell Mr. Wade's story, he... he you know, he grew up in a small town in the Depression. Uh, he was in the in the military when he was discharged. He started working at uh, what's a fairly well-known uh, uh, company in York Graham Architectural Products. He started out as a draftsman. By the time he retired there, uh, 30, 40 years later, he was the president of the company. Um, you know, he, he's a quiet, stoic um, type of person. And, you know, when he testified again, there's just everything is just completely genuine about him. And so, you know, we all know that the plaintiff is the case. Um, he was a great plaintiff. And and then there's no way that we would have had a verdict quite like this uh, without him. Um, what I tried to do was 
bring home what that means to be blinded um, in ways that you might not think of, ways that I hadn't thought of, you know, until I talked to him about it. Um, you know, he talked about things like, you know, he hadn't seen his wife's face in, in four years. You know, he had, he had, you know, grandchildren that were growing up and going to sporting events and, and things, and he couldn't see them. He had had great grandchildren born since the injury that he never saw. Um, and then he said one thing to me, and I, this just kind of ripped my heart out and I related it to the jury during the closing was he talked about, you know, during the holidays, everybody was around. He has, you know, this big family, he has three children himself, lots of grandchildren, uh, a couple of great grandchildren. And so you know, they're all around and you can picture this scene. You know, what a, what a wonderful heartwarming scene that everybody would hope to be a part of someday. And he described being part of that scene now was like, sitting in a dark closet, listening to everybody talk on the other side of the door. And, um, and I, like I said, so I, I tried to use moments like that to just mm -hmm. show people like, it's not just, you know, Oh, I'm, you know, I, I can't, I'm trying to figure out how to feel things in front of me. That's not the experience. The experience is these things, these everyday things that you take for granted that will just never be there before. Right. <clears throat> uh, re so related to that, you know, other than your client himself, who else did you have uh, testify to help establish things like that? It was his extraordinary family. Um, <clears throat> again, he had uh, it, it, his wife was a little shy; she didn't really want to be up on the stand, but his children were were fantastic and uh, put them up there. And and you know, this is a close family. Um, you know, they're they're all very warm people, and so when they talk about each other, it's like I said, it's it's so genuine, uh, and it obviously connected with me and and connected with the jury and and produced this result. So one of the questions we usually ask, and I know this is only a four day trial. Did you have William there every day, sitting at counsel table with you? Yeah, he, he was. Um, it was actually it was actually five days, but we had a blizzard in the right in the middle of it, <laughs> and we got snowed out one day, which is uh, which is its own form of torture. <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, man. Um, so, well, so you mentioned you did get to talk to the jury. Did you ever um, get a sense from them about where their you know because they they awarded around four million dollars for basically the non specialists? Did you get a uh, did you get to talk to them about where that number came from? if it was connected to anything or if they just wanted to give them a lot of money? Yeah. I, um, I, you know, I, I don't, uh, I don't always talk to jurors afterwards. It, it depends that sometimes that's an enlightening experience and, and sometimes that uh, just makes you want to not go on any further after doing that. But this was really an extraordinary experience for, for me as a lawyer, um, the pinnacle of, of my career in, in a lot of different ways, not only getting to work with such an extraordinary client, um, there's so many twists and turns that this case took over these five years to get us here um, and then get this exceptional, exceptional result. But uh, it turned out that the jurors really could not wait to talk to me. Um, there was at least seven or eight of them that were downstairs. I was still up in the, the courtroom. I was explaining some things to my client. Uh, we had a few things to do with the judge. I was up there for a while. One of the jurors had to leave, wanted to talk to me so badly. He came upstairs to find me just because he wanted to talk for a few minutes before he had to go. And when I say, you know, you guys know this is what you do for a living too. If you close your eyes for a minute and you try and imagine to yourself, what would the absolute 
perfect discussion with a jury B after I just concluded a trial, what would that look like? Right. That's what this was. <laughs> I mean, I can't, I, I, I don't think I could have conjured up something better than this. Everything that I wanted them to do, everything I wanted them to, to think and to believe and to, to be important to them was what they expressed to me. Um, all of the, I just, everything was as, was as good as it could possibly be. Um, they were effusive with their praise. They, uh, their hearts were all in absolutely the right place, of course. Um, you know, I, I believe I, I asked, of course, how did you come up with that particular number? Um, and I don't think there was a good answer for mm -hmm. that. Um, they, they did want to give him a lot of money. And I think, you know, jury's work, I think somebody threw a number out there and yeah, everybody, everybody signed on to it. And yeah. Uh, yeah. that's where we are. So one one thing that I was wondering about is, um, you know, usually, and and this, I guess this is really in where you've got a hotly contested liability case. But if a jury's coming back to me in an hour, I'm usually not that pleased about it. Usually, I want them to be out, and I, I we sort of have this rule of thumb. It's like between four and eight hours. Like if it's more than four and less than eight, that's pre, a pretty good sweet spot that they talked about it long enough. You know, and then to come, you know, figure out a number and come back. If it's more than eight, then you might be looking at a hung jury. And um, but so when they came back in an hour, did you did you already have the sense that the trial had gone well, or were you a little worried at that point? Both. <laughs> um, I'm sure you guys can can relate. Um, it was shocking that they were back as soon as they were, and I agree with you that I, you know, my experience is that's not good. Um, right. You know, they come back and say no on the top lines of liability. That's how you get really quick jury deliberations. Normally, they go on and talk about the other things. That takes a while. Right. But what I couldn't reconcile, though, was I did feel really good about it. It did feel like it had gone really well. Mm -hmm. um, and so I just couldn't reconcile. I was like, I can't believe it. I mean, I can't believe after all that, they would come back and say no negligence and just be done. Um, so, yeah, that was... Uh, that was quite the emotional roller coaster there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I imagine it also had to be really feel really good because, you know, I guess depending on how the verdict was read, but at least looking at the form, you know, you know, at one point that you've won on liability, um, but you don't know initially that they're going to come back and, and, and just give absolutely no um, fault to your client. Um, that had to mean a lot to you and, and to him as well, I would imagine. Yeah, when they re they read the verdict form, it's a little bit like a, like a poker player turning over his hand one card at a time. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah, the first one was they found the other side negligent. It was like, oh, yeah. you know, and then the second one is um, <clears throat> uh, factual cause. Uh, and then the third one is the, the comparative negligence we have here in Pennsylvania. So that was the big one. When they came back and said zero comparative negligence, then I was like, great. But again, here in York County, one of the great risks is everything can go wonderfully for you. And then you get to that damages question right. and the jury awards a number that they feel good about themselves for. They feel like they really helped your guy and you're sitting right. there disappointed. This was not what you had in mind. Um, and so when they said the word uh, format, I actually still have my piece of notebook paper that I was writing the answers down on. And the handwriting gets really shaky as I'm putting those extra zeros on the... <laughs> <laughs> on the, the 4 million, I was like, did I hear that right? Did I really yeah. hear that right? Um, <clears throat> but yeah, that was, uh, that's a moment I'll always remember. The, the adrenaline gets going. Oh yeah. And, uh... yeah. <laughs> and, 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 you know, when that comes out and it comes out your way, it's, it's such a, uh, I mean, it's, it's great joy, but it's also just a sense of relief. Like, you know, whew, we, we, we got it. We did it, you know? 
I mean, it's joy. I mean, obviously, as lawyers, you know, we like to win. Um, so it's joy for yourself. But the the joy I felt honestly was for Mr. Waite. Um, you know, again, we want to win, but this is vindication for him too. Right. It's vindication that this was not your fault. Okay, you did not bring this on yourself. This was somebody else's responsibility and you have been harmed greatly. And a jury is acknowledging that and respecting that in a way that, I, that you know, I mean, nothing obviously makes it all okay. Uh, but that's a really important thing though, nonetheless, to have that validation. Yeah. yeah. Uh, to, so to the extent you can talk about it, what happened after that? Was there an appeal or are we able to get it resolved? So um, there was never an appeal. Uh, despite their threats that there would be. And I, I didn't expect there would be. There, there just didn't, there really weren't, there was no obvious appeal issue uh, to come out of it. Um, they did, however, file uh, a small mountain of post-trial motions that took a couple of months uh, to work their way through. There was some attempt at negotiation. They came, they offered us uh, a million five, I think it was, um, which we turned down. The, the only um, concession that we would have been willing to give them was uh, Pennsylvania allows for delay damages that start to accrue a year after the complaint is filed. Um, and so, again, because we were five years down the road here, which mm. was largely due to the fact that the case had gotten kicked on summary judgment. So that added like two years to our, our calendar. Um, the delay damages on $4 million had added up pretty good. Um, is is delay damages, is that basically interest on the, on yeah. the judgment? Okay. Yeah. And what what interest uh, amount? Or interest? Uh, prime plus one percent, I think it was. Oh, okay. I don't remember what it came to at the time. Um, but we're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars right. uh, yeah. here. And so, at one point, I think we went back to them and we said, you know, okay, we'll waive the, we'll, we'll waive the delay damages. You pay the base verdict, and that didn't get us anywhere either. And so, it wound up going through to the end. The judge ruled on the post trial motions. Not only did he shoot them down, and this is the same judge, by the way, that had kicked it on summary judgment. Um, who, by the way, at the very end of the trial, in a conversation with myself and opposing counsel, said out loud that he realizes now that he was mistaken and should never have granted summary judgment in the case, which was <laughs> right. like, was like, okay, I'm going to remember this yeah. moment right here. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, that's great um, that he had admit, uh, you know, admitted that. But well, but he then, when he um, denied the post-trial motions, he basically read his opinion from from the bench and he did it in a fashion which really foreclosed the possibility that there were there could be a successful appeal on this so we knew that that was that was the end of it there yeah. gotcha How, just talk about that for one second so this judge had given you a a, a bad pre-trial ruling was there any tension during trial like that he felt like he didn't like your case didn't you know no. And I, and I should say that I, you know, I, I know that I've known this judge for a long time. York County is that kind of place. Um, you know, there's, I don't remember what the number is now, 12 or 13 judges, but I, but I'd known this judge for a while and he's a, he's a, a good man and he's a good judge. And he, you know, I, I don't, I don't know what he was thinking when he granted the summary judgment at this point. I'm not sure he knows what he was thinking when he granted the summary judgment, but he would never uh, carry something like that over. And it wasn't like that at trial. Good. Good. Yeah. Well, um, I wanted to make sure that you had a chance to talk about your, uh, I think, former law partner, Jim Greenberg, and maybe yeah. your lucky ties at trial. <laughs> yeah, that was, there are so many aspects of this, which made it an emotional uh, case for me. But one of which was one of the name partners in my firm, a man by the name of Jim Greenberg, um, had uh, passed away during the 
the course of this case. He wasn't involved in, in the case, but um, it, he had uh, a very sudden onset of an extremely aggressive form of cancer. And just like that, uh, he was taken from us. And Jim was really not just uh, a tremendous attorney, um, a real advocate for uh, the victimized and the oppressed anywhere, uh, but he was an even better human being. Uh, and really made an, a major impression on me. He was both a mentor and a friend. Um, and so in the aftermath of that, at some point, uh, his wife uh, had the, had his, his ties, his neckties, and uh, she didn't know what to do with them. And so she took a few of them and, and decided to give them away to some people, um, you know, as, as just a, a meaningful kind of gift. Uh, and I was very honored to receive one of them. And so when I got this tie, I remember thinking to myself that, yeah, I don't really know that I'll ever wear this. I, you know, Jim was, let's just say he wasn't necessarily known for keeping up on the latest fashion. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and so, you know, it, I just, I just remember thinking, I don't know if I'll ever wear it, but I, I had it in the office. And so when the case got kicked on summary judgment and it went up to the Pennsylvania Superior Court on appeal, uh, we had oral argument. And I decided that I would wear that tie uh, on the day of the oral argument as a way of sort of bringing Jim with me and his passion for judgment. Jim would have loved this case. He would have, this is exactly the type of situation um, with an insurance company, I think, really overstepping its bounds with, a, you know, this, this defendant really showing such arrogance. Uh, Jim would have really uh, dug his teeth into this. And so I, I wore his tie to the oral argument. Spirit Court obviously uh, found in our favor, uh, reversed the judge, sent us back. Um, and that, that sort of became known as the, the, the magic tie at that point. This was, um, you know, had Jim's magic in it. And so I put it back in my, my closet and I left there and I decided, you know, I'm only going to wear this when the situation really calls for it. And I didn't have another occasion that really called for it uh, until this case went to trial, um, which is only about a, a year later. And so I wore it on the, the first day of trial. Um, there's another, uh, one of the attorneys in my firm had also been gifted, uh, one of the ties. I wore his tie on the second day of trial. Um, I then wore on the, the fourth and final day, I wore my tie, uh, again. And then of course, when, you know, we got this terrific result that f completely cemented the notion that this was one magic tie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so and it sits in my closet under, you know, behind very thick plexiglass with lots of alarms around it and waiting for the, the time to use it again. Right. Do you, do you have people like offering to like associate, associate you on a case in exchange for letting them wear the tie? I, you know, it's funny. I, I have another client that was familiar with the story and he actually said to me, he's like, you're going to wear that tie at my trial, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's great. How special. Well, Craig, this has been um, just a really great conversation. And uh, I want to remind everybody that we've been talking about the William Waite versus Argento family partnership case, uh, which was tried back in 2017 and resulted in a $4,035,329.11 verdict. And uh, I wanted to make sure, Craig, is there anything else that you uh, want to make sure our listeners know about uh, that we haven't gotten a chance to talk about this case? I, you know, the only, the only other fact that's sticking in my hitter that I would throw in there is, you know, we, we, we had zero settlement offers in this case uh, up until just a, a few weeks before trial when the adjuster called me directly uh, and offered us $50,000. And that, and that's with the $35,000 medical lien. Right. 
And and that was when we had the conversation where he said that he didn't think that their million dollar limits were at stake here. That, you know, the other thing to add is that they wound up, even though there were million dollar limits, the insurer wound up paying the full 4.5 million. And the reason was because their client was an insurance defense, bad faith defense lawyer who had written a letter to them saying, yeah, you know what, if you have a chance to settle this within your policy limits, I want you to do it, even though I don't think he actually did want them to do it. Right. Um, but they were on the hook for the uh, for the entire thing. So, so did you get a sense, I mean, was it because of the client you think there, why they never made any realistic offers or, and I guess the other thing I should, did you, you had made a policy limits demand or a million dollar demand on them. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah it, I mean, listen, it's conjecture on my part, but yeah. I, 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 I always thought that he, their client, you know, their, their insured here was putting some type of pressure. I don't know exactly where that comes from, but some type of pressure on them not to pay this. Um, and then, uh, but of course, he was smart enough to put them on notice, you know, to, to set up his bad faith defense there uh, if it, things did turn out badly. So, yeah, between his letter to them saying, if you can settle it, I want you to, and then my letter to them saying, hey, we'll, we'll take the limits. You know, once the, the excess verdict came back in, there was never a question that the insurer was going to be on the hook for the whole thing. Yeah, I, I did. I, I did look up uh, the, the lawyer and I did notice the first thing he put on what he does is bad faith cases. Yeah. <laughs> is he still a super lawyer? <laughs> uh, I, I didn't check that, but I, I just assumed that he is. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Um, well, let me remind everybody, we've been talking with Craig Milston uh, of the Catherman Briggs and Greenberg Law Firm, uh, otherwise known as KBG Injury Law. And you can look up Craig at resultsyoudeserve.com. Craig, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials Podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast. And we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.